This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute and a professor of management. Now I'm thrilled to welcome Steve Wanker, managing director of New Markets Advisors and co-author of Costovation, innovation that gives your customers exactly what they want and nothing more. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Your book is really fascinating. I had a chance to to go through it and... Uh, you know, what I was struck by is so many different ways of thinking about innovation on the cost side of the value proposition. And so let me start by asking that almost every company comes up with, you know, our product is better, cheaper, and faster or better utilized than some other company's product or service. How is this uh, cost innovation concept different? So I think a lot of energy around innovation is dedicated to better, uh, and better is often more expensive. This, this is why companies are innovating. They're trying to increase their margins, and that, that's driven by financial pressures, by metrics, uh, by some extent prestige within the company. Uh, and yet there is a lot of opportunity to make things better while also making them less expensive. Now, there are a handful of fields that do that, like televisions, for instance. Things are better and less expensive. But much of business isn't operating like that. The tools of innovation are kept to the people in product development, and they're not put into the rest of the business to really engineer a low-cost solution that people also love. Mm -hmm. So you talked in your book about Toyota and you know how they have uh, sort of modularized the process you know, the platforms and the early five variations of platforms. Um, and I think that's a very compelling sort of description of a large company taking cost out through some degree of uh, about significant process changes. Uh, what I was wondering was, why does Nissan not do that? So it's hard, right? just like the Toyota production system was a hard method for manufacturing companies to implement, so too is this modular platform. Uh, it requires a real strategic focus to trade off a lot of things that you won't be able to do because you have that sort of modular platform. Mm -hmm. uh, but once you make that decision, then it, it also anchors you in a part of the market. So you really have to understand the market and have a strategic uh, courage to to double down on that part of the market where you think you can win, and then make some very rigorous uh, cost trade-off decisions. Look, Toyota vehicles are very well-made vehicles, but they are certainly not one-size-fits-all. This isn't a brand catering to all ends of the market. Uh, I think they've been able, with this modular production system, to do that. Uh, Volvo is doing it as well, but a lot of automakers haven't gone that far yet. I see. And... Um so I think part of what you're saying is that uh, you start with the customer value proposition and then look at process, and you have a chapter on process where you talk about how you might uh, reconfigure the process to have a superior value proposition. 
And on, um, you know, when you're towards the end, you have this idea about seven signs that your industry is ripe for cost evasion. Mm. You know, expensive features, expensive customers, expensive sta- sales, and so on. And uh, fascinating. I, so, uh, w- how many industries are vulnerable to cost ovation? Uh, if you take an industry like uh, medical devices, mm-hmm. so um, in, we have an example in the book about pacemakers. So, right. uh, your typical high end pacemaker today, which is predominantly what the pacemakers that are sold, uh, has around 90 settings that a physician can configure before they implant it. And the average physician configures zero, mm-hmm. right out of the box into the heart. Uh, now, there was an opportunity there to cater not to the high-end specialists that wanted everything, but to those people who implanted things directly into the heart. Uh, and moreover, to sell to those folks not in a super consultative way where the sales rep has to be in the operating room, uh, but in a much more transactional sort of manner. Mm-hmm. So Medtronic did that. And given that it was the company that invented the pacemaker, that was revolutionary. But it created a, uh, a separate unit where it sold a perfectly adequate but not hyper-configurable device. Uh, and it sold it over uh, the Internet. If people wanted special support, then they would have to be billed for it by the minute. Uh, and that has positioned them in a totally different segment of the market that they were rapidly losing to low-cost competitors from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So, I, look, I, I think if it works in pacemakers, th- there is a pretty robust uh, applicability here. Very interesting. So I saw that you worked with uh, Harvard professor Clay Christensen, and, of course, he's well-known for his work on disruptive innovation. Um, and you, you of course, uh, in your book kind of reference the idea of disruption. Uh, how does your model kind of build on that, or how is it orthogonal to that? Sure. So one of the key mechanisms of disruptive innovation is when uh, a bunch of the market is being delivered over complex, over expensive solutions, and somebody comes in with a good enough, simple, inexpensive solution and ends up cleaning up, t- taking a, a bunch of the market away. Uh, and I, I think that lower end pacemaker is an example of a disruptive innovation. Mm-hmm. Now, Clay's work, and I worked very closely with Clay for six years, uh, Clay's work points out the strategic vulnerabilities of companies. He does not go in depth in his, in his writings about how you accomplish that. How do you achieve that radical step in, in cost position to enable disruption? So this was a, a, a gap in the literature that we really want to target with this work that we've done. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So, you know, if you look at uh, another domain that is really uh, sort of meets your standard of uh, industries that are vulnerable to disruption, you can think about, you talked about devices already, you can think about some other domains in healthcare. And the question is, with the incentives being so strong to cut cost, I mean, first of all, there may be some good examples of uh, frugal innovation in healthcare beyond uh, medical devices. Uh, do you see a kind of a significant uh, wave of change in healthcare services that might pick up on cost evasion? Yes, very much so. So as you mentioned, the incentives have become around cutting cost. 
it used to be that the the balkanization of healthcare into health insurers and healthcare providers like hospitals, uh, and then their physicians who were independent of the hospitals made it too hard to coordinate incentives. But by and large, the incentives are now coming on to the provider organization, to the hospital or the healthcare system that's delivering care. Uh, and they have a lot of incentive to cut the cost. So you see institutions like Cleveland Clinic, which are you know, certainly extremely august institutions, uh, but they're instituting things, as we describe in the book, for example, uh, like a EICU, where people can reside in one central facility and check on dozens and dozens of patients at any one time. Now, this enables both lower cost care but also higher quality care because you can get extremely specialized physicians um, being a sort of virtual bedside with patients who might be in very far-flung locations but who require that kind of specialized care. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important principle of conservation. We're not talking about giving people stuff that they hate because it's low cost. We're not talking about nickel and diming. This focus is on things that serve customers actually really, really well, that delight them, which are also low cost. So, you know, my colleagues in marketing talk about this idea of market segmentation and customer preferences and how they vary. Um, I see a little bit kind of uh, not as much uh, focus on sort of different segments of the marketplace and how each segment in fact nowadays they say that even the concept of segmentation may be obsolete it's very much the individual customer uh, so i get the sense here this is very much a provider's view of uh, you know cutting cost although you do say you know giving customers exactly what they want so how would i know what customers want uh, and how would i know how different customers may want different things and how do i se- select the segment uh, I get you have this checklist of twenty strategies at the back end, and part of it may be in your playbook. But would you like to summarize that? Sure. That you know there are premium customers, there are you know moderate customers, there are cost sensitive customers. Um, how do you you know how do we sort of sort through all that as we think about cost innovation? Right. So I am a big believer in customer segmentation, and while I agree that it would be ideal to have a segment of one. Uh, it's very expensive to serve a segment of one. So there does need to be, if you're trying to achieve a low-cost position, there does need to be some mechanism of grouping people together. Plus, it's just much easier for a company to execute. So my my last book was titled Jobs to be Done. And and this is also a a concept that uh, has its roots with Clay Christensen. Um, We are big believers in understanding not what are the demographics of some group, but really what are they trying to accomplish? Uh, And then from that, determining who is more demanding and less demanding. And it might be in in different sorts of ways. You know, we we open this book with an example, Planet Fitness, which is the fastest growing gym chain. It has leader, is number one in customer satisfaction. It's 10 million members, and it is $10 a month. So how does it do that? It, it does it by customer segmentation. It focuses on the casual exercisers who are looking for a basic cardio workout. They don't need personal trainers or free weights or fancy machines. They need basic stuff that is always available. That's it. And so it's a hyper-efficient model, which also delights customers because it's rooted in that segmentation. Mm-hmm. 
fascinating. And so, in a sense, what you're talking about is, um, uh, you know, having like a a la carte model in that case, right? That you have people with with perhaps the more basic needs, and then as they need more, there are added added options. Um, And I think that's a very interesting example. Um, just uh, hold that thought for a second. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Harbir Singh. I'm speaking with Steve Wunker, author of Costovation. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. The phone lines are open at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So, Steve, I wanted to just ask you about, um, you know, Amazon has been the big, you know transformer of the retail business. And uh, has, did the people at Amazon uh, kind of use costovation as a primary driver, or was it, in fact, reducing cost and, in the end, raising differentiation in some way? So Amazon is not the lowest price vendor of a lot of things, although it's definitely inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that's fine. We're not saying that to be a cost-ovation leader, you must be the cheapest in the market, but you have to be economical. And I think most people would say Amazon is. But Amazon also delights its customers because it really understands them very deeply. And then it works things through in often invisible ways to the, the customer to deliver a low-cost, high-quality experience. But, you know, in e-commerce, I think there's a company that actually out Amazon's Amazon with Costivation, and that's Jet. So Jet, owned by Walmart, uh, and it actually enables the customer to team with them to lower the cost. So if you order something that ships from the same distribution center as something else that you've ordered, your price decreases. If you pay with a debit card versus a credit card, your price goes down. There's a lot of ways that they can enlist the customer in reducing their own costs and sort of even gamify the experience. Mm-hmm. That is really creative cost evasion at work. Hmm. So do you think Jet will, uh, through Walmart, will Walmart actually start gaining on uh, on Amazon through Jet? So I, I think it's something Walmart had to do. Uh, look, it, it's tough for anybody to catch up with Amazon. They've locked in high-value customers with Prime. They have a huge brand lead. They have a lot of scale economies. Uh, I, I think it's a reasonable proposition. Uh, it's hard to say that because a- Amazon is just really good at being fleet of foot and uh, adapting to pressures. Um, but I, you know, I think if anybody is going to take them on in terms of just basic e-commerce, then that sort of model with Jet that plays the game differently uh, is the way that you're going to do it. Very interesting. So you know, just switching gears a little bit. Um, so Michael Porter, who uh, yeah, you went to Harvard Business School. You may have taken mm-hmm. classes from him, or um, you know, uh, sure. certainly very well aware. So he has this idea about differentiation and cost, and the idea is that differentiation adds to cost in some way. So there's a frontier, there's kind of a value frontier. Either you go very low cost, low differentiation, or you go, as you add differentiation, uh, your cost position goes up. And of course, there are winners in that. So people who are winners are on the frontier. Um, in, in, in your concept, you talk about delighting the customer, uh, but some of that may be things that raise the willingness to pay, which actually require investment. You know, it may be 
a superior sense of service. It may be a sense of well-being. It may be brand attachment. You know, many of these brands uh, where we buy things, we buy clothing, and they have very high prices, and uh, it's not clear that the cost of production links to that. Uh, I think you know what I'm talking about, you know, the idea of high differentiation versus low differentiation. I, I do. So, uh, look, Porter's work is is seminal. Uh, competitive strategy was published what, 42 years, 1976, whenever that is, uh, a very long time ago. 1982 years ago. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but that's not it, the book I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, uh, look, it, it is indicative that um, these concepts do have staying power, but I think there are lots of companies that enable breaking of that paradigm, right? So Target is differentiated and low cost. Uh, Toyota is very high production quality and low cost. Jet is differentiated in its customer experience and low cost. So if you can thread that needle, it's not easy, but you know, that, that's why we give a lot of examples about how it's done. Uh, if you can thread that needle, there is a huge opportunity to break that trade-off and really stand out from the marketplace. I think it can be done. All right. So uh, just a quick uh, thought on that, though, I think is uh, in order to you know, make that claim, one would look, need to look at people who failed at that as well. And you know, um, and that's just very dif- very uh, difficult to do. But I I get your point. I think what you're saying is that, you know, as we as we add differentiation to our to our product line, maybe there are people who can also cut cost at the same time. Uh, that's that's where you're focused, and that's and that's fine. Um, let me let me just ask about open innovation. I think you had so open innovation for our listeners is you know where firms uh, essentially. It's it's a bit like the iPhone with the apps, uh, where many many innovators connect to our platform and and provide you know uh, uh, services or products that uh, that increase our the innovativeness of our core offering. And the idea of open innovation is that companies will um, will will source innovation from partners with. Uh, complementary technologies, collaborators, right? And I think you talk about, I think, Colgate Palmolive as one of the examples in your book. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about open innovation and whether, in fact, it might be a way uh, to uh, actually uh, deliver better cost? Uh, I think you don't uh, often go there. You talk about cost separately, but wouldn't it actually deliver better cost? And would that be a paradigm that is different from what we are seeing today? So a lot of companies do still try to keep all of the innovation in house, um, but and you know I think you've alluded to it. There are many leaders out there that not only achieve better cost position, but uh, have better capabilities than they could ever engineer in house. So Colgate. Uh, institute the idea for the the wisp, the disposable toothbrush. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while it's disposable, it actually requires some pretty thanks, uh, fancy manufacturing technology. And so they teamed with a Swiss firm to do that. Look, you, you mentioned Apple. Apple is open innovation not only in the apps but in the manufacture of the phone, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a lot of the components that that drive some of its innovation. Right. So uh, you know, it's knowing what you do well. And so again, this goes back to an understanding of the market. What is the market really going to value? And therefore, what should we and the segment of the market that we're going to concentrate on? And therefore, what must we own? What has to be integrated in? 
And the other stuff, perhaps it's better to do it in-house, but oftentimes it's not. Uh, and increasingly in an in the economy where so much is uh, available through outsourced mechanisms, you at least need to be cognizant of, of what capabilities you might be sacrificing by having this sort of religious adherence to doing things inside the four walls of a company. So why do people do it then? If if uh, source, I agree with you, by the way, sourcing innovation has plenty of opportunity. Uh, but just to your last point, why do people... Uh, very much focus on in-house innovation? Well, look, it, it's easier. Right? There's less sourcing of, uh, of solutions. There's less finger-pointing involved. Um, sometimes you don't have time to find suppliers. But if you organize a capability around it, which requires a little bit of upfront investment, but it has really long-term dividends, where you're not just procuring, you're, you're not just bidding things out, but you're really working with partners in a collaborative way, finding the partners, collaborating, with, uh, maybe iterating your own internal ideas based upon the partner's input. Um, that is That takes some upfront investment, but it really pays long-term dividends if you're focused on the right things to outsource. Mm-hmm. And um are you, I don't know whether you're familiar with the um, – well, actually, I had a different question, which was around since you were involved in smartphones at one point, and I'll come back to that. But uh, you talked about Apple, and you know, what do you think explains the failure of BlackBerry vis-a-vis Apple? Well, BlackBerry, uh, they certainly had a customer segment they were going after. Uh, and when the, the iPhone was launched, they didn't see it as a threat because it wasn't a serious business user's handset. Uh, but they really failed to grasp the development trajectory of something like the iPhone, as well as the overall customer experience. They had a very functional view of mm-hmm. what a customer wanted, and they didn't catch the emotive components uh, of Apple. So uh, Apple was just able to to play along dimensions that they hadn't even been thinking of and improve along um, from a less demanding tier of the market to pretty highly demanding tiers quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that they got beat on several fronts. So I think Apple is now, ironically, at, at stuck in the high end of the market now, and they need some cost evasion themselves to survive over the next five to ten years. So, uh, in fact, that's a great point. So what do you think they should do? I mean, where should they focus? They're, they do use Foxconn for production, and Foxconn right. is uh, really, really low cost. Uh, sure. They use well, it, uh, it, developers for apps. Right. It, it is being open to having somewhat lower-end devices. Look, in the last quarter, Amazon or Apple's uh, stock popped up because of the, their revenue growth, but that was driven by a $30 increase in the average selling price of its handsets. Mm-hmm. Their unit volume growth was 1%, and they actually were surpassed as the number two smartphone vendor in the United States by Huawei, a Chinese manufacturer. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of warning signs there that Apple is getting stuck at the high end of the market. And look, that, that's wonderful. Own the high end. It's super lucrative. But in order to grow, you can't be shrinking in your market share. You need to be able to uh, have viable low-end devices that are not like the the PC Junior for IBM, uh, a sort of uh, – uh, product that, that nobody really truly desires, but things that are desirable in their own right. I think Xiaomi and Huawei and you know, some of the lower cost manufacturers have been able to produce 
perfectly acceptable, pretty well-performing handsets that are significantly less expensive than where Apple's been pricing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what should Apple do? I mean, I understand all that. Uh, If you were to use your cost-ovation approach, what should Apple do? So I I think Apple is a pretty efficient company. Uh, This is, for Apple, it's less about what's on the back end and more about what the product is. Right. Um, Right. They don't need to be at the $1,000 ASP. What is going to be a perfectly good $500 device that doesn't feel like something that's undesirable? Yeah, I think you're right. I think they have become – it's actually fascinating that uh, they actually continue to – continue to um, gain in market uh, cap uh, with the $1,000 phone because, you know, it, it only reveals the, 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 the challenge of trying to go to a lower price point, which uh, has to happen at, at some stage. So I think that's a great point. And um, I think it's good when one can actually uh, look at a situation and say something might, uh, that this might actually change. Uh, so one last question I had was, you have this fascinating prior experience in uh, a Pan-African Cellular Network, Celtel in Zambia, and then you also worked with uh, with a British company that developed one of the world's first smartphones. So did you actually anticipate that this would become this incredibly, uh, you know, uh, highly valued industry uh, when you were working there? Uh, so in, in Africa, I did. People thought I was nuts to move to Africa and uh, take on a job there. Uh, but we did great in Africa because it was a very simple proposition, and we had a good market position. Uh, and I, I knew that you know, communication is valuable, and the competition was really, really, really bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, for smartphones, so I, I led the team that developed one of the first smartphones back in 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we uh, so we didn't have the branding. We thought of it as the connected PDA rather than the smartphone. Uh, look, we thought it would be big. We had no idea it would be as big as it became, or it would become as addictive as it is. We thought of it as essentially a productivity tool on steroids, and we were focused on our core user of PDAs because that was the company I was working for uh, that was looking for business productivity tools. So uh, I think we had the right idea, um, but we could have used a little bit more imagination well, about you know, yeah. what this is about, right? It's not just a productivity tool. It's no, no, I think it's yeah, – I completely – well, you know, in my own academic work, by the way, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about uncertainty. And I think very often in strategy, we tend to trivialize uncertainty. So, I, you know, you're exactly right that you saw the potential, but, you know, no one knew it will become that big. And – on another front, actually, I was just in Kenya and South Africa about 10 days ago, and uh, I think you're exactly right. That market has a long way to go, and it's growing dramatically. So you were there very, very early. Well, Steve, it's, uh, thank you so much for joining the show today. Where can our listeners uh, go to keep up with you? Well, we have a lot of resources at costovation.com. You can download uh, portions of the book and tools. So that's a great place to start out, and uh, you can always look at our Twitter feed from New Markets Advisors. And where can they find your book? Everywhere. (laughs) We we have very wide. Including Amazon, right? (laughs) Uh, Certainly on Amazon, uh, but we're going to be in a a ton of airport bookstores uh, starting, I think, next week. So uh, it, it will be widely found. For more insight from Business Radio, 
please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.